All right. Good to see you back on Sunday night. Thank you, musicians. Take your Bible this evening and go to Psalm chapter 147. Psalm 147. Let's spend a few minutes together tonight uh, really thinking about the goodness of God. Uh, And I think you would agree with me if you're saved, God is good. And the old saying, God is good and God is good all the time. And uh, the psalmist kind of speaks to that a bit tonight. Let me remind you, uh, if you've been with us for any part of our study through the Psalms, you certainly can go back on the archives and look at any that you're interested in or that you have missed. Psalm 146 and 147 are kind of together. Most theologians, and I agree, think that they are connected to the return from exile, meaning Israel came back from Babylon. You'll remember the history of that. Um, When King David died and Solomon died and his son took over, Solomon's son was not a very good good king. Uh, He didn't listen to his dad or his granddad, and the nation split, and they, they had a civil war. They didn't really have a civil war. They split, and he couldn't hold it together, and so there became a northern and southern kingdom. And from that on, that time on, it began to decline spiritually. It began to get away from God, and God would send prophets to warn them uh, that they needed to repent and come back, and they did. And then God revealed through the prophets that he would send the Babylonians and send them into captivity for 70 years, and that's exactly what happened. Nebuchadnezzar carried them away. Uh, at the end of 70 years, God moved on the heart of the Persian king Cyrus to allow them to go back to the land. Uh, And so they they went back to the land. These writers uh, here, I believe, are maybe Haggai, Zechariah, we don't know, but they're writing about the return. And so God, having brought them back to the land, they talk about praising God and how good he is. And so with that context, look at verse one. The psalmist here says, praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is beautiful. Now first he starts with making a simple statement, let's praise God together, and he gives three reasons. And first he says, because it's good. And I would equate that to the phrase that we often share here, it's always right to do the right thing. And praising God is the right thing. Praising God is the good thing. Praising God is the thing uh, that, that we should do. It, it, is, it is that thing that's natural for us as a Christian, as a child of God, as one who's saved. When you see a blessing in your life or even in a difficult time and God comforts you, it moves us naturally to praise, doesn't it? It moves us to automatically say, God, you're so good, even in this difficult time or when something fantastic. I, I was telling Sherry the other day, uh, we are so blessed and, and, I, and I, I pray and I tell God, God, I don't know why you bless me like you do, because I certainly don't deserve it. You are a gracious God. You are, you're just good to us. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. God had brought them back. Now, I think there are three, and there are many more, but I kind of summarize them in three reasons why we should praise God. The psalmist said, we're going to praise God because it's good. Well, why is it good? Why is it the right thing to do? Well, let me give you three real quick. Number one, because God is worthy, because of his nature. You know, you could say it a lot of ways, God is the supreme being of the universe, okay? He is the all-powerful, omnipotent, omniscient. Uh, He's the creator, his very character. He's holy and he's righteous and he's perfect. He's all the things that the Bible says he is. 
Would you not agree he deserves to be praised? He deserves to be worshipped because of his character, because of who he is. So if for no other reason we worship God simply because he's worthy, we'd be okay. We'd be on, we'd be on target. We'd be on spot on. In fact, when we read the Bible, we find out that all the creatures of heaven, what are they doing all the time? They're worshiping. Man, music, they're singing. I hope you like music because in heaven there's a lot of music. There's a lot of singing and there's a lot of praising going on. And so God, just because of who he is, is praised and worshiped in heaven. And so that same thing should happen here, particularly among those who are born again uh, by faith in Jesus Christ. The second reason why it's good or, or right to praise God, now again, they had their reason God restored them and we'll look at that a little more. But the second reason for us is, is the spiritual blessings of God. And chief among that is salvation. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm reading the Bible and I, and I read about uh, God, His sovereign work and the process of salvation, man, my heart is, is just broken over the fact that of, of the billions of people who are alive today and the billions who have lived on the planet, God knows me personally. And He cared about me and He cared about where I was and, and, and what my life would be. What a personal God we have in the saving process that he would send his son and die for us. And then, and then listen, you, can't, you and I can't get saved unless God makes the first move. I mean, he drew us. What mercy and grace is that? That God would help us to understand so that we could then exercise faith and believe on him. And by the way, the faith that you exercised when you got saved came from him too. So we really should worship God. We should praise him for that. So for his character, for his spiritual blessings. And then uh, the least I would say in this group, but all reason to serve him is the material blessings of life. God gave us physical animation. He gave us a body, he gave us a soul. We, you see, God created us from nothing. We did not exist and now we exist. How that happened? It's beyond biology. It didn't, you got a body through biology, okay? You got a soul because God willed it to be so. You became a, a living soul at the moment of conception because God created you in the womb. David said, God knew me and he put my parts together and he knew all of me before I was here. So we should praise God because he's blessed us uh, with material things. And, and certainly that includes food and shelter and clothing and health. How many times in this life, now think about this, the things in this life are important to us, but they don't really amount to much, do they? I mean, we said this morning they're all gonna burn up. How many times have you asked God for what surely is a mundane thing? You know, God, I, I would like to have this or I need that and God blesses you with it. Or, or you ask for a job and God gives you a job or you pray about a house and God gives you a house. God is good to us. And so we should praise him. And, and so Israel, the psalmist is saying here, Israel should praise God because it's good um, and it's the right response. It is a natural response. What happens when Christians, when we today don't praise God like we should? What brings us to that? And we kind of touched on it this morning a little bit. Well, when we, when we become more enamored with this world than we are with Jesus, we don't praise God like we should. We become more enamored with the world than we are with Jesus. We don't read our Bible. We don't pray like we should. And we don't attend church like we should. And, and, I, and listen, I can... I can only say it, I, I wish I could say it where people would listen more. The body of believers in the corporate worship is vital to the Christian life. 
I mean, we don't get saved. The church have anything to do with us getting saved, but once we're saved, it is, it is a lifeblood for us to have fellowship and study the Bible and worship together. And so when we let those things fall by the wayside or not be as important, our worship of God loses its luster a little bit and, we, and we're not what we should be. But they were, and they said, we're gonna praise God. Now, next they said this in verse one. They said, we're gonna praise God or praise God because it's pleasant and beautiful. It's pleasant. I'm gonna tie those two together, pleasant and beautiful. In 1981, the end of the year, the Navy sent me to Millington, Tennessee to go to school for a year to learn electronic stuff. And I was uh, 20 years old, I think. So I go there and Bellevue Baptist Church is in Memphis, Tennessee. It used to be downtown, and the late Dr. Adrian Rogers was the pastor there. And they would send a bus, a Greyhound bus, that said Bellevue Baptist Church on it. You know you have a large church when you have a Greyhound bus, right? So they sent this Greyhound bus to the base every Sunday morning, and it would drive around the base and pick up sailors who wanted to go. Well, I didn't have a car there, and if you were E3 and below, which I was at the time, you had to wear a uniform. So to get on that bus and get off the base, was a treat and you get to go to church. So I thought, man, that's a good deal. So I would get on the bus and I'd go down there. Worship and praise in God is, is pleasant and beautiful. I grew up in a small country church. Some of you maybe can relate to that. I got saved when I was 11 and most of the preachers I had sat under as a kid were hellfire and brimstone, spitting, you don't sit in the front row. And some of them would come down out of the pulpit and scare you, they'd get down, get down there next to you and, you know, yelling and hollering. And when I was a kid, I thought they were angry all the time. I'm like, man, the preacher's mad every week. Man, he is, he's like really laying it on. Man, I'm not sure what happened, but I don't want to get on the wrong side of that. I don't know what he did. Well, I went, I went from mostly that, which is fine. I mean, a lot of people got saved, scared the jeepers out of them and they, they got saved. I went from that to Dr. Rogers. Anybody ever listen to Adrian Rogers? Yeah, if you haven't, you go online and pull up some of his sermons. Man, he, he's like a master Bible teacher. And I remember being 20 years old and sitting, and, and I still remember the two series that he was in when I got there. On Sunday mornings, he was preaching through the book of Genesis, and on Sunday nights, he was preaching through the book of Revelation. And I remember when he started the series, he said, I'm gonna preach on the two books that Satan hates the most. He hates how it all started and he hates how it's all going in. And I, you know, I never forgot that at 20 years old. And so here's my point though. I could tell, you know, when I went there as a young man, it was different. The word of God was really held up high and the teaching was where I could understand it. I mean, I, I you know, 20 years old, I, I read the Bible all the way through, but man, he, he taught the Bible and, and it was pleasant and it was good, and it was good to worship, and it was beautiful. And, it, and I, at 20 years old as a young man, I enjoyed that. I mean, I went there, and it, it spoke to me, and it fed my soul. And I remember telling my mom, who's in heaven now, my mom was a Bible student to the max, man. I mean, she studied the Bible all the time. And I, I remember coming home and leaving, going, Mom, I went to this church. And you're not going to believe it, man. It is huge. This church is giant. I sit in the balcony but the Bible teaching is fantastic. So it was pleasant to worship there and it was beautiful to worship there. And then I thought the same thing 
without taking much more time to explain it, downtown, the late Homer Lindsay, and some of you were, went to First Baptist down there when he was there. I used to go to pastor's conferences down there. And man, the worship and the, and the fellowship and the same thing, the word of God was, was held up, you know, and was taught and, and, and taught in a way where you could understand it, make application to life. And I remember how pleasant it was to go down there and, uh, and to worship and be a part of that. And that's how it's supposed to be for Christians. It's supposed to be pleasant and it's supposed to be good. When you come to, listen, all of us, let's just Sunday night, so let's just be honest, okay? You say, Pastor, you have to be honest. You're standing in the pulpit. I know, I, will, I won't lie to you. Let me, let me, let's be honest. I have been to church before when I'm checking my watch. When is this going to end? Have you ever done that? Now, don't, don't, be un, don't be all holier than now. You know you've done that. You're, you're like, good night, man. You know, church shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that way. You should come in, have good fellowship, have worship, and somebody ought to, ought to be able to take the Bible and say, hey, here's what God said. And here's what it means to, your, here's what he said, and here's what it means to our heart. Now, that is not, that's not like this new formula for church, but that's what it's supposed to be. And it's good, it's, it's beautiful, and it's, it's encouraging, it's pleasant. So they said, we're gonna worship, and it's gonna be pleasant. Now, one more thing I would say about that. When you read the New Testament, Christianity is a public exercise. Everybody listening. Christianity is a public exercise. It's, it's private in that you got saved, but the exercising of our walk with Jesus Christ is a public thing. We should so worship and serve God every day that people can see the difference, right? What did Jesus say in Matthew 5, 16? I, I learned this, what was that? It wasn't Awana. What was that thing we did, Sherry, in that, where you do sword drill, sword drill, Bible drill. You remember that? Get that funny Bible and they see how fast you can find verses. I had to memorize verses. First verse I ever memorized, Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before men, what? They may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Christianity is so pleasant for us that, that people should be able to see it and go, man, what's wrong with them? They're having a good time. They actually like going to church. They actually enjoy reading the Bible. They actually enjoy worshiping and singing. It is a public exercise and we should live so that people can see that we love Jesus. Nothing worse than a bunch of grumpy Christians. You know, nothing worse than a bunch of Christians who are, who are mad all the time and grumpy and picking on people, right? I mean, what kind of testimony is that? No, worship is pleasant and it's enjoyable, so we should act that way. Now, here's the reason in verses two and three that he said it's so pleasant to praise God. And he talks about God's recovery of his people in verses two and three, look at it. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up the wounds. And, you, and for the word wounds, it can also mean sorrow. So God binds up wounds, physical and emotional and spiritual or sorrows. Now let's take the first part, he restores his people. Now for them, literally contemporary to them, it would be the return of the captives from Babylon, from Persia now, because Persia captured the Babylonians, back to Israel. Do you remember the guy that led the first group back? You remember his name? You can't forget it, Zerubbabel, okay? 
And he led about 42,000 Jews back from captivity and they go back and they begin to build their homes. They begin to build, the, lay the foundation for the temple. In fact, Haggai in the Old Testament, and that is a prophet in the Old Testament, I promise you, Haggai, he was upset because they were working on their houses and not working on the temple like they should. And he complained and said, God, they're spending too much time building their houses and they would be building the temple. But the fact is they built their houses and they laid the foundation for the temple. And so the psalmist is simply saying, God has been good to us because he's recovered his people. He's restored them. And I'm thankful that whole idea of recovery, we don't have time to fully explain all and, or explore all that that means, but God recovered us, didn't he? I mean, we were lost in sin and, and separated from him and God recovered us. He bought us back out of slavery. He redeemed us. God specializes in recovering lost people. God specializes in recovering his people and he did it for Israel. Now I was thinking this week when I was reading and writing this, Israel is in their land right now, just to kind of make a comparison. But their existence there is tenuous at best. I mean, think about it, every nation around them wants to drive them into the sea and doesn't want them to have the land and, and they live with the constant threat of, of war and being attacked. And so they are in the land, but, it's, but it's, it's uncomfortable from time to time. And I've been there. I've been there when the rocket alarms go off and you go running for shelter. I've been there. How would you like to live like that? Every day, your kids go to school knowing you might get shelled or, or somebody might attack you. The fact is it's gonna get worse for them. In fact, in the tribulation, after the church is raptured, Antichrist is gonna make a, a covenant with them for half of the tribulation, then he's gonna break the covenant. And then he's gonna turn against Israel and try to destroy them. And when it looks like he's gonna succeed, right when it looks like the Israel's gonna be wiped out, Jesus is gonna show up. He's gonna return with the armies of heaven. And, and guess what he's gonna do? He's gonna redeem his people again. He's gonna save them, he's gonna call them back. He's gonna, he's gonna secure Israel because Jesus will come, destroy the Antichrist, his army, the whole deal, and set up his kingdom on the earth. So the fact that the psalmist is praising God for restoring his people, the half hadn't been told yet. Because when Jesus sets up his kingdom, listen, when God sets up the kingdom in Israel, when Jesus is sitting on the throne of David for that 1,000 years, Israel will own all the land that God promised to Abraham and they've never owned it yet. Do you know how far their land reaches that God gave them? There's nations around there who wouldn't like this very much. From the Mediterranean Sea to Euphrates River, God said, I'm gonna give that to you, that's yours. Does God lie? Mm -mm. That's their land, they don't possess it right now, they will in the millennial kingdom. Israel's small right now. I've driven across it, rode in cars across it, rode in a Jeep one time across it, it's small. When Jesus is sitting on the throne, it's gonna be big, be large. So God has just begun to restore his people, but they praised him for it. They will be fully restored in the kingdom age. Now he also says in verse three here, that God's a healer. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds or their sorrows. And I was thinking about the, the return and the building of the temple. When you read about the returning of the, the rebuilding of the temple, which would be the second temple, the older people who had, been young when the captivity started, 70 years later, and they're back in the land and they see this foundation laid for the temple and there's great rejoicing and weeping because people are happy. The Bible says there was a group of them weeping because they were sad. Why were they weeping? Because they remember the glory of Solomon's temple that was destroyed. And here's why they were sad. And here's the point about binding up the wounds. 
The captivity, the, the destruction of Jerusalem and the fact that they were taken captive by, by a pagan nation, by a heathen nation and subjected to all kinds of insults, shamed them. And they were ashamed. And they came back ashamed of their sin. They came back ashamed that they had forsaken their God. And they came back ashamed that they had lost so much and sin had cost them so much. And it was an open wound in their heart. It was an open wound in their conscience. And they wept over that, over that small foundation of that second temple, knowing how much they had sacrificed for sin, which wasn't a fair trade. And they were ashamed of how they had, had insulted God and the pain and the suffering they had gone through and the loss and the death. But you know what? God binds up the hearts of the broken. He binds up those who have, who have messed up. Aren't you thankful for that? Have you ever been ashamed before God? I have been. Have you ever been ashamed of not being all that God wants you to be or, or having done something that you know you shouldn't do? Have you ever been ashamed because sin breaks your heart? And let me tell you something. If you're here tonight and sin don't bother you, you need to get saved. That's the all there is to it. Because if you're saved, sin's going to bother you. Sin will bother you. Sin in the world will bother you. I'm reminded of poor old Lot down there in Sodom and Gomorrah. It says over in Hebrews, his righteous soul was vexed every day. Vexed every day. Why? Because you know the, the king of the universe and you know the savior of the world and sin bothers him and in order to bother us. And so when we fail, we come back with a broken heart, with pain in our hearts, and we come back and God heals up our wounds. And he binds us up and he helps us get past that sin. One thing I've discovered in my Christian life and in, in the ministry in general is we can go to God and ask him to forgive us and he'll forgive anything. But it's hard when we try to forgive ourselves, isn't it? It's hard when we try to deal with the sin in our heart and try to say, you know, God forgave me, so I'm going to let it go because we hold on to stuff. But thankfully, the Holy Spirit binds the wound and soothes the hurt and restores us to where we ought to be. And I was thinking this week also, there are two things that are true of sin, and that's why it hurts so much particularly for Christians or, or lost people alike. There's a general consequence of sin, which is just death. Nothing good ever comes out of disobeying God, period. Simple statement, but carries the way of the world. Nothing good ever comes out of disobeying God, period. And that's true for lost people and saved people alike. Not only is there this general consequence of sin, in the world, but there's specific consequence. God has built into sin specific consequences when we disobey him. Every sin has some hurt that it's gonna bring, every single one of them. And I'm sure you and I are familiar with the ones we've been engaged in or that we have engaged in in the past. They bring hurt and they bring separation from God. Sin is, uh, is bad. That's an oversimplification. Disobeying God is bad. The effects of sin in the world are hurtful. Sherry and I attended two funerals this weekend, I told you, one on Friday and one on Saturday. In both cases, parents were burying children. That shouldn't be. That's just not right. That's not the way it ought to be. Parents should not be burying their children. What causes that? Sin in the world. This is a broken world. It's broken because of sin. And that kind of stuff brings pain and sorrow. And only Jesus can heal the wound. Only Jesus can help in those situations. I wrote this down about sin. 
Sin never satisfies the soul. It says it will, but it won't. Sin always leaves us hungry and thirsty for something that's missing. It's always deceptive. Sin always leaves us empty on the end. It says it'll be so fulfilling and so exciting, but all sin always leaves a wound that you can't heal. It always leaves a cut that you can't mend. Only Jesus can. I have discovered in my life over the years, the best thing to do is try not to sin. How about that? Ask God for help not to disobey him and not do the things that you're not supposed to do, okay? Now, God heals, and I was reading behind Matthew Henry, and he had a quote, and let me, let me read this to you. It's a good quote. We'll move on quickly. He says, to those whom God heals with the consolation of his spirit, he speaks peace, assures them that their sins are pardoned and that he is reconciled to them, and so makes them easy, pours the balm of Gilead into the bleeding wounds, and then binds them up and makes them to rejoice. Only Matthew Henry could say it like that. That's good, okay? That's what Jesus does for us. Now let me, let me draw us to uh, some finishing tonight. Look at verses four and five. He moves from talking about the healing of God to the greatness of God. And the connection is this. He just said God can heal. And now he's gonna say why he can do it because of his greatness and his power, okay? Verses four and five. He, God, counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite or without measure. Let's talk about the stars for just a minute. I told you this morning, we're going to talk about them. I think it was in June of this year, maybe last year. I think it was this year, just a month or so ago. Might've been last year. NASA launched a rocket. You know what its purpose was? Now they launched a lot of rockets. There's satellites in orbit and research and stuff. This rocket was specifically launched to count the stars. They're still trying to figure out how many stars are out there. Now, you know how they do it? I looked this up this week. I, try, I spent a lot of time on this part right here, so this is interesting. They take galaxies that they can see with their powerful telescopes, and they count the stars, one, two, three, four, you know, as best they can. But understand, there's, there's just myriads of stars inside of a galaxy. So mathematically, they do averages. They figure out how many stars are in this part, and then they figure, well, they should be about the same many in that part. Okay, you do averages, right? And so they average in a galaxy how many stars are in there. And then they count as many galaxies as they can see, and they multiply, and they go, well, if we had this many, if we think there's this many stars in this galaxy, and it's always an estimate, because nobody can go one, two, three, four, you know, Nobody can do that. So they do an estimate in this galaxy and then, they, and then they multiply all the galaxies. And here's the number they came up with. This is the latest number, by the way. It'll change tomorrow, but this is, the, this is the latest number. They say as best they can tell, and they think they're off by a factor of 10, which is a lot, okay? That's what they said. I thought, well, man, you can't get any closer than a factor of 10. That's pretty pitiful, but we are counting the stars here, okay? They said that as best they can tell, and maybe they're all by factor of 10, there's 100 quintillion stars. Now, I didn't know what a quintillion was. I'm just confessing, so I had to look that up. A quintillion is a one with 21 zeros behind it. And they're off by a factor of 10. They, <laughs> not very accurate, are they? 
<clears throat> so they sent this rocket either last June or just a month or so ago. They sent this rocket into space, and, it, and its purpose is to, to count, to try to count stars in a galaxy so they can better, more accurately figure out how many stars are up there. Now, I'm telling you all that to say this. We don't have a clue how many stars are up there. I mean, we're guessing, right? We're, we're like going, well, you know, if there's this many, and, and we're guessing because we don't know. But to give an illustration, there are, there are more stars, if we will put this in an illustration, we can understand, there are more stars that we can see than there are sand on the seashore. You get like, wrap your brain around that, okay? There are more stars. Now think of, what is a star? Get this now. A star is like a sun. So it's like our sun, which is really a small sun, there are all these suns, all these balls of fire, for lack of a better term, okay? There's all these balls of fire that are self-perpetuating by gases and fuel that God put there, and they keep burning for a long, long time, and God put so many of them out there, we can't count them. That's pretty good, isn't it? What does that tell us? God's big and God's powerful. Now, watch this. We can't count them, but God did. God knows exactly how many are out there because he counted them. It says right here, he counts the number of the stars. So if we want to know how many are there, we just got to ask God. We don't have to count them. God, how many stars are out there? Notice the next thing it says. He calls them all by name. We'd be hard pressed to come up with that number names. Star number one, star number, your star number two. Yeah, I, I don't know. You'd be hard pressed to come up with 100 quintillion names to name stars. But notice, notice how casually and nonchalantly the Bible addresses it. Oh, and by the way, God's great because he counted all the stars and he knows them all by name. And in creation, how does it say God put the stars out there? It's almost like a little tag and God created, oh, and he created the stars also. Well, that's not an also. That's a, that's a wow. That's a, that's a, you created all those stars out there. That's a pretty big deal. And God goes, nah, that was a piece of cake. I just said it and boom, there they are. Not only did I say it and they just appeared, but they appeared doing the exact thing I want them to do, burning the right temperature and burning in the right intensity. The vastness of the universe. We don't have time for this, but well, I gotta tell you one more. This stuff will really get you going. <clears throat> the speed of light is fast. It's about the fastest thing we know, okay? And, and, and according to physics, we can never achieve the speed of light because mass increases as you approach the speed of light. Therefore, mass would always increase and we can never achieve the speed of light. Unless you could put an object in a vacuum, there's a whole other theory. But the point is this, the speed of light is really fast. Just to travel to the nearest star outside of our solar system would take more than a lifetime at the speed of light. The nearest one. And how many we just say are out there? They're, 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 we don't know. I mean, there's, there's like just a big number of them out there. And here's the point, all that. We have a great big God and we're a little bitty people. We have a great big God on a little bitty planet and a little bitty solar system. 
that's a speck in space. And God cares about you. <laughs> that just blows your mind on it. Who am I, God, that you would care about me? Who am I that you would even know that I exist? Who am I that you would create me and die to save me? And the God of heaven humbled himself and came on this little speck of a planet in his universe that we can't even fathom with our brain to live and die for us. Wow. That's all you're going to say. Wow. So the psalmist said, here's how great our God is. He counts the number of the stars. He calls them by name. And then in verse five, he says, great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. What he's saying is this, our God is omnipotent and our God is omniscient. Omnipotent means all powerful. There's nothing that God can't do. He can do anything. That ought to encourage you when you pray. God, I'm, I need, I'm hurting, I need something and God can meet your need. Why? Because he's God. And what does it mean that he's omniscient? It means he knows all things. There's nothing that he doesn't understand. There's nothing he can't answer. There's nothing he doesn't understand. There's nothing he doesn't know. He knows everything. He knows the beginning to the end. He lives outside of time and space. Now here's why the psalmist is saying all these great things about God. He's saying, our God who restored his people can do anything. And our God who restored the nation back to Israel can do anything. And our God can take care of his people. I would suggest for the psalmist, that whole captivity thing got them focused in the right direction, didn't it? Because they said, man, our God has brought us back. Let me close with one more verse. Look at verse six, because really the first six verses go together. He said, the Lord lifts up the humble and he casts the wicked down to the ground. Now here's how that ties into the first five verses. The superpower nations of that day had humbled Israel had conquered them and God allowed them to do it and had shamed them and destroyed Jerusalem. And if you read the history, <clears throat> and I have, you read the historians take, many historians take on what Nebuchadnezzar did when he conquered Israel and how he marched them all the way back to Babylon from Israel and the shame and the things that he did to them. And uh, it's, it's heartrending. From that humility, God has lifted them up. And what the psalmist is saying in verse six is this, God delights in reversing the order that we see in the world. The wicked and the powerful are proud and they sit in high seats and they sit in high places and they like to take advantage of the humble and the weak and those who can't help themselves. God takes great delight in proving himself to be God when he humbles the proud and exalts the humble. When he humbles the proud and exalts the humble. So what do we learn from that? Mm, if we're gonna approach God, we need to come humbly. We need to come recognizing who he is. Now I know the Bible says approach the throne of grace boldly. Doesn't mean arrogantly. Doesn't mean self-fulfilled or proudly. It means come boldly because God promised that he would help us. The boldly means I come because it's my only source of help. 
But we must come to God with a broken and contrite spirit, understanding He's the God who names the stars and counts them and put them out there. He's the God who holds all of creation in His hand. And according to Colossians chapter 1, it consists or hold together because Jesus wills it to be so. That's how we got to come to God, recognizing who He is and who we are. And when we come to God humbly, here's what He does for us. We come to Him humbly, God, I'm a sinner and I don't deserve a thing. He goes, I know that, but I'm going to forgive you and give you everything. That's good stuff. If we come to God with the you owe me attitude, that won't work. He humbles the proud and he raises up the humble. How have you approached this great God tonight? He's a restorer of his people. God specializes in restoring those who are separated from him. And he'll do that for you tonight. If you've never been saved by faith in Jesus Christ, I would invite you to do that. If you're a Christian and your life has not been all that that it ought to be before God and the Holy Spirit has convicted you of that, God restores his people. He restores Christians backslidden or away from him. He's right where you left them. He restores his people. Would you come to Jesus tonight? Would you humble yourself before him and be saved? Let's pray. God, thank you for the power of your word and how it speaks to our hearts. God, I pray tonight if there's a man or woman, young person, boy or girl who is without Jesus Christ right now, in the quietness of this moment, God, in the privacy of their seat, they would just cry out to you, God, I humble myself before you right now. God, forgive me, save me. God, restore me to a right relationship with you in Jesus Christ. God, help us as your children to see this world for what it is. Lord, a, a, a place where we are strangers. God, this is not our home. Help us to be the witness that we should be, to live a life in public that people can see and not be ashamed. And God, you be glorified and in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing. If I can pray with you or help you, you come on the first verse.